1: It feels like now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, there's going to be a different update. There's going to be a different plan. There's going to be some different news that comes your way when it comes to what sports and what our society could look like after some of this dust settles. And there's some semblance of normalcy. To everything that's going on, of course, with dealing with and handling COVID-19. Baseball has given you a couple of different things to chew on. It started first with the idea of exclusive Arizona baseball in the variety of venues and stadiums that they have. Then there was another plan that we heard about that involved not just Arizona, but involved Florida and involved maybe the state of Texas and having maybe three destinations and three locales as far as getting the sport back in order. But the one we heard earlier in the day, I found to be rather intriguing. Now, we still have a long way to go before any of this is put in motion. We still have a long way to go before this would, dare I say, become official in any way. But what I think it's important to understand, and what I think it's important to realize, folks, is that what we are used to, what you may be used to, as a baseball norm, as your regular way of enjoying and watching sports, is going to be drastically different you got to understand that right here and right now it is going to be drastically different sports coming back into society and a game like baseball getting back there are going to be some changes especially to get the wheels in motion especially to get the game back and operational our idea of divisions Our idea of our usual tradition as far as the sport, the teams that you used to see and the teams that you used to play in, could be going completely out the window. So baseball, at least according to the report from Bob Nightingale and a couple other places, talked about an Eastern, a Central, and a Western division completely realigned based upon geography. In fact, it involves the two crosstown rivals the Yankees, and the New York Mets being in the same division. So, if this plan ends up being put into place, you would be looking at the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Mets, the Phillies, the Rays, the Orioles, the Nationals, the Blue Jays, the Marlins, and the Pirates, all lumped into one eastern division now it would be break broken up a little bit based upon geography some of the geography is a little hard to understand for example you're seeing right the pirates in the eastern division pirates of course playing in pittsburgh now i know we're talking about the state of pennsylvania but anybody knows the geography of the state You know what you're talking about with Pittsburgh. I mean, we're talking about Western PA. I mean, we're talking about a six-hour drive from New York City. But this plan has divisions thrown out the window, basically, and geographic divisions put into place. Maybe games being played at the home stadiums. Obviously not going to see anybody in those buildings anytime soon. But intriguing. Intriguing. Look. Look. The testing needs to be taken care of. We know that. We know there needs to be some form of answers as far as the safety of the players, the overall well-being of the players, but you hear people around the sport of baseball, they seem to be rather optimistic that this is something that can be orchestrated, that this is something that can get done. You hear that from passing. You hear that from Nightingale. You hear that from all the folks around Major League Baseball. There's too much money at stake for baseball, in my eyes, not to play. I think no matter when it may be, and it may not be until, who knows, July, middle of July, who, to try to figure that out, to try to guess that would be impossible. But baseball's growing hopeful that they're going to play. And could you imagine if our treat of coming back and watching games in empty stadiums and our treat of baseball getting back into our lives is going to mean... More Subway Series games between the Yankees and the Mets. You know, normally you see the Subway Series once or you maybe see it twice. Once at Yankee Stadium, of course. Once over at Citi Field. And you've had enough. And normally you say, you know what? I've seen what I need to see. The idea of anything getting involved and more games and more fun and more back and forth between you guys is exactly what I'm looking for On a day where we sit here, one of the final days of April, another month has gone by without sports in our life. That's the harsh reality we're dealing with. Now, we'll get into what this potential plan could look like, whether or not you like it, whether or not you're with it. And we'll have some fun along the way. I do also want to get into our other trip down memory lane or our usual trip down memory lane, which is becoming like an annual rite of passage with many of these shows, but eh, that's the way it goes these days. So yesterday we spent a whole lot of time talking about the greatest individual rivalries, right? And of course, Bird of Magic was brought up and Ovechkin and Crosby was brought up and Matting and Brady was brought up and then we dove into some of the local ones like a Cummins and Piazza and really, even though they ended up being teammates, Jeter and a for many years as rivals on different teams, and then, of course, being frenemies on the same team. But what I wanted to do today is I wanted to dive into the greatest rivalries that we can remember from a coaching standpoint. And in some cases, there isn't that animosity. There isn't that bad blood between two particular managers, two particular coaches. There may turn out to be a great feeling of mutual respect between the two. However, there are many examples to look at over the years, going through games, going through all moments in any of the sports where you can think about iconic figures going against each other time and time and time again. And... The easiest sport to look at when you think about the great rivalries between coaches, for me, in many ways, it's college basketball. And the reason I would say it's college basketball is because even though the players may change consistently, the coaches don't, the style does not. In many ways, college basketball coaches are the biggest stars that the sport has to offer. Because you may see a Zion come and go. You may see a Carmelo Anthony come and go. You may see a Carl Anthony Towns come and go. But that kind con- of Mike Krzyzewski, of Jim Calhoun, of Jimmy Beheim, of John Thompson is always going to be there. And if you think about the bedrock in the history, especially of the Big East, the Big East, in many ways, can look at a lot of the rivalries from an individual standpoint between their coaches. And in many ways, it helped them grow their league to the extent that they did. Now, you guys know, you're talking to a Syracuse guy throwing throw. You're talking to an all-time Syracuse alum. Maybe I'm a D-lister on the list, but you know what? I love my school at Bleed Orange. You guys know that. The rivalry between John Thompson and Jim Behan, as you go through the 1980s and it continues into the 1990s, there was no love lost between the programs, between the coaches. It got chippy. It got angry. It got hostile. And it helped build the Georgetown-Syracuse rivalry into what it ultimately became. But it goes beyond just Jimmy Beheim coaching against John Thompson because for the folks who are listening right now in the state of Connecticut, the rivalry I'm sure you guys are going to think long and hard about when you think about the Big East, it's Jim Beheim going against Jim Calhoun and all of those great battles that Syracuse and UConn had really from the early to mid-90s on, as Syracuse was already established as a Big East power, UConn rose to prominence, won their national championships, started churning out NBA talent left and right, and became a force in college basketball in a major, major way. But it goes beyond just the Big East and specifically my school. What about the great coaching rivalries you have in college football? And again, college football in many ways can do the exact same thing. When you talk about Barry Switzer going against a Jimmy Johnson. Or you're talking about Bo Schembechler going against Woody Hayes. Obviously a coaching rivalry well before my time. But the hostility and the bad blood and just everything about the rivalries between these figures. It's so fascinating to watch. It's so intriguing to watch. Then you can dive into other sports and I'm sure you can find examples that come to mind. And obviously, we're now all prisoners of the last dance moment. We're all into it. We've all, you know, dialed up every nook and cranny when it comes to what we are watching. And we're going to get to the Phil Jackson, Pat Riley, Jeff the rivalry that was clearly there. That clearly influenced both guys and was something that I think in many ways ate at Pat Riley and ate at, without question, Jeff Van Gundy, is this idea of Phil Jackson, who, yes, is one of the most accomplished NBA head coaches in the history of the sport, and is a guy who, yes, was very much instrumental in the Chicago Bulls going and winning championships, hands down. But Phil was very prideful of the way his team played the game. The triangle offense, the ball movement, Jordan, the star power, you name it. Then you had these Nick teams coming in. And you had the likes of Patrick Ewing, who was a star. But you had Oakley, and you had Anthony Mason, and you had John Starks, and You had guys who were looking to muck it up. In the same way, the Detroit Pistons were looking to muck it up. Now, I don't think the Knicks got under and irritated the Bulls the way Isaiah and his boys were able to do it. No, not to that extent. But the Knicks and the Bulls, it was a blood rivalry across the board. And Phil was very dismissive. Of the Knicks. And the way they went about their business. It was basically the idea of. You want to make it ugly. You want to beat us up. You want to like bring us down to your level. Maybe they were the classic. Phil Jackson Jedi mind tricks. But I do believe Phil. And seeing the way he's handled his business. Over 30 years. I don't buy the idea that that was. A portion of the Zen. I think that was Phil Jackson telling you how he felt. And it ate especially at Jeff Van Gundy. And remember, Jeff Van Gundy always was looking over his shoulder coaching the New York Knicks because he took over as an assistant coach. He took over for Don Nelson. He was very protective of Patrick Ewing. He was very protective of his Nick players, and that's why he's so beloved here in this town. But his back and forth with Phil Jackson in the media, going at him, Jackson going back at Van Gundy, Jordan calling him the little man. It's phenomenal stuff. And a lot of it has to do with that style of play. But it's the rivalry between those two being at its height. Being at its finest. And I'm sure there are many professional coaching rivalries we can look at. Guys going at it. Matching up in many ways. But I do think long and hard about the Phil Jackson-Nick battles with Riley... And with Van Gundy. And in many ways, the rivalry between coaches was even greater when it was Jeff Van Gundy. Because Pat would try to play it cool and would have the, you know, veteran-like approach to it. As a guy who has won, as a guy who has been there before. Van Gundy, far more of a chip on his shoulder. Like, Knicks Bulls, the height of Knicks Bulls, Pat Riley's coach in the team. The height of the coaching rivalry is hands down with Jeff Van Gundy. Go back and look at some of the comments coming out in 1996 and 1997. And trust me, you will understand why.
0: (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too.